The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evident against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay, then. Let's pray. Lord, certainly this is not an easy scripture, but we thank you that all of your scripture, you have prepared a message for our hearts through Randall, and we pray that we would have receptive spirits this morning to hear what you would say to us, and that we would gaze upon your word of life and walk away changed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, my name is Randall. I'm the lead pastor of Grace City. It's great to see you this morning. You know, and I've been amazed this past summer at all of you being here with all of the challenges and obstacles to be here on a Sunday morning, right? It's like, it's not only that we're in a new location, you know, we moved over here on this side and and all that, but it's navigating all the traffic out there and finding a parking space. We didn't even know about all that stuff, right? But, it, but you're here. And so I'm amazed by just your resilience to be here on Sunday mornings. And I'm thankful for you. Um, so right now, we're going through this series, the book of James. And the cool thing about going through a whole book is you go through the whole book. And there are scriptures that are hard to understand. There are scriptures that would be easier to avoid because it's a little harder, you know, scripture. It's a little harsher. And so that's what this scripture is today for us. When we get to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, it's it's a hard text to to swallow. And I got a text this uh, week from Brendan, who was leading our worship, and he says, Randall, this this scripture is very intense. Uh, What direction are you going in? Because I got to pick some songs to go along with this. And so I said, here's the direction I'm going in. What does it look like to be rich in God? Rich in God. In 2011, uh, John Lynch wrote this book entitled The Cure. And this book is about a man's journey to find God. Who is God? What is God like? And this man is on this journey. He goes down this path. And then he sees this big post with signs on it, one going one direction and one going the other. And on one side, it says this, this this path is to please God. If you go down this path, this is about pleasing God. The other one is, if you go down this path, this is trusting God. And so the man stands there and he looks at it and he says, aren't they the same thing? He says, well... Trusting God, that that seems too easy. And so I'm going to go with the pleasing God route. 
And so he starts walking down that path, and there's this huge mansion that he sees with a party going on inside. And all over this mansion, it talks about pleasing God. What does it look like to please God and, and doing your best to please God? And so he walks inside, and there's a hostess inside, and she's got this big grin on her face, and she comes up to him, and she says, welcome to the house of good intentions. And she says, inside, you're going to meet a lot of different people that are here. And so come on inside. But before you come in, I've got something for you. And so she gives him this mask. She says, wear this mask. It'll help you. And so he puts on the mask and he starts walking around, talking with people, introducing himself. And people are telling about the great things that they're doing for God. About one's doing mission work, one's a pastor, one's doing all of these things for God. One's very wealthy, well off. But as he starts to walk around this room, he starts to feel out of place. He thinks to himself, I don't measure up to the people in this room. And he says, the mask started to get a little itchy. And he says, as he started to talk with these people and started to look at himself, he says, I don't fit here and I can leave this mask on or I can leave this room. And so what he does is he takes off the mask and he runs out of the room as fast as he can. And he goes back to that post and he looks up and he says, I don't know if I can do this trusting God thing. But he looks up again and he says, fine, I'll go. And so he goes down that path and he sees that there's another mansion and he walks inside. And it looks very similar to the last place he was. But it wasn't as ornate as that place. It didn't have as much flair. And inside that place, people didn't have masks. And a hostess comes up to him and she says, this is the room of grace. And there was this pause and a smile, and, and she puts her hand out to him. And he says, you know, I, I just came from this other place, and I don't know if I fit in this place. And so he was, he said, you know, she said, how are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm doing fine. And, and he said, the whole room started to watch him. Eyebrows tilted with skepticism toward him. He said his heart started to sink. He says, I'm, I'm tired of this. He towards, turns toward the room, all eyes on him, and he yells out to everyone looking. He says, hey, everybody, listen up. I'm not fine, not fine at all. I haven't been fine for a long time. I'm tired, confused, angry, afraid. I feel guilty and lonely. That makes me even angrier. I'm sad most of the time, and I pretend I'm not. My life is not working at the moment. I'm so far behind and freaked out about what to do next. I'm almost completely frozen. And if any of you religious people here know half of my daily thoughts, you'd kick me out of your little club. So again, I'm not doing fine. Thanks for asking. And so I think I'm going to go now. He turns towards the, turns towards the door, grabs the knob, and then one person booms from the back of the room and says, that's it? That's all you got? I'll take your anger, guilt, and dark thoughts and raise you compulsive sin and chronic uh, lower back pain. Oh, and did I mention I'm in debt up to my ears 
Also, wouldn't know classical music or a show tune if it jumped out to me. Uh, you better get more than that little list. The room erupted in warm, genuine laughter, and it wasn't to embarrass him. The hostess leaned over and nudged him. She says to him, I think he means you're welcome here. He says, I step into the room, welcoming smiles, and there's not a mask to be seen anywhere. Right away, I wish I'd known these people all my life. See, the room of grace, the room of good intentions, wearing a mask and thinking that the mask is enough. See, what is this idea of grace? As Ryan stated last week, the book of James is filled with God's grace, but what is grace? Grace, I've heard it said like this, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Why do I need to point that out today when we're looking at this text? Because what we find here is that there are wealthy people who are putting all of their stock in a mask, in a facade, and thinking that they were okay. It was all a cover-up. And so what James says here is, take off the mask and put your faith and trust, not in your earthly riches, but in the grace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, some scholars have debated, is James even talking to Christians in these verses because he is so harsh? And here's the answer. Yes and no. Yes and no. Here's, here's the answer. He, you know, he is speaking boldly to the emptiness of wealth and how the rich who don't know Christ will perish, much like the Old Testament prophets would have done. They would have brought the condemnation down to those who rejected God. But James Adamson says it well when he says this. He says, James is deliberately embracing the non-Christian as well as any rich, selfish Christian. See, for many of us, we read this text and we say, oh, the rich, that's not me. I don't fit into that category. But this was meant for all of us to process and self-evaluate and say, is this me? And the conclusion is that many of us would not walk away unscathed. See, why do these verses apply to Christians just as much as non-Christians? Because Christians need both the comfort and also the warning about the dangers of wealth. Christians need to be comforted that ultimately God is the judge and he'll make all things right. And so there are poor that, that are being taken advantage of and God will bring judgment upon those people who are taking advantage of the poor. Yet, Christians also need to be challenged on where they are currently placing their trust. Do we put our trust more in our bank account than what Jesus says? You see, James's specific target audience is the rich, and they are taking comfort in their earthly riches over God's grace. 
They're taking comfort in their worldly possessions, this mask, and, and James is unashamedly stripping them of the mask and telling them, take it off. Look, look at what it is. It will fade away. Jesus is the only one that matters in the end. See, and as shocking as this might be to some of us, because it is so harsh, this is the most loving thing that James can do for us today. Because here's the truth. God, in his love, will strip us of our worldly comfort so that we can find our true comfort in him. This is what it means to be rich in God. See, this is about trusting God's riches over the world's riches. Remember the definition of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense? See, what are these riches? They're not material possessions that will fade away, as James tells us that they will. And we all know that they will. They pass away. They don't last. He says it is in the infinite, unpassing love and acceptance that we have in Christ from an almighty, holy God. And so our text today is James 5, 1 through 6. And, and just to give some background, James addressed the rich earlier in James 1, 9 through 11. And here's what he said. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So again, James has already talked to the rich earlier and the poor. And what he says is for the lowly. So if you're lowly, if you're poor in this world, he says, think on your exaltation. Think on the riches that you have in Christ. Think of all of the things that God has done for you to lift you up. You're not poor, you are rich in Christ. You're not held to the world's standards. But then he says to the rich, okay, so the rich are up here. We say, oh, we've got all these things. We got these material possessions. So that makes me better than other people. But what he says is to boast in your humiliation. This is the other side of the gospel. This is what brings us low. He says, you need to boast in your humiliation that we are sinners. We are sinners in need of God. And so we're not better than anybody else. But God, in his grace, brings us low so that he can lift us up. And then he tells us that all of these riches will fade away like the grass. It all falls away. It all perishes. And so, in many ways, this should be shocking to the people that James is talking to. Because, again, as Jesus talked about the rich, right, and it shocked them, it should shock us. In that time period, people thought those who are rich, they're blessed. Those are the blessed ones. Those are the ones that God loves more. But Jesus confronted that. And he says, no, that's not true. That's why in, as he was approached by a rich young ruler who had it all, and, and he says, I've, I've done it all, God. You, you, you know, to Jesus, like, I've done all God's commands. Jesus says, do one thing, sell all your possessions. And he says, no, I can't do that. That was the thing that controlled his heart. He didn't love God. He loved his wealth. And so Jesus exposed that. And so again, it just was shocking to people when they found that out. Like what? This isn't about God just loving the rich. 
No. In today's text, James goes deeper and he, he specifically identifies some things in our lives that will help redirect our trust to God, not in earthly wealth. And so here's the thing he identifies. The first one is, number one, our misplaced trust. Our misplaced trust. Number two is needed repentance. Needed repentance. And number three, costly grace. Costly grace. So our misplaced trust, needed repentance, costly grace. And here's my hope. As we work through this passage, it'll start to open up to you. Right? Like God's word will start to open up to you, start to understand it. And so um, the first one is misplaced trust. Look at verses one through three. Here's what it says. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is, has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. This passage is meant to do one of two things. Number one, it's meant to comfort, again, the poor, but also to make uncomfortable the rich. Right? So like we said, he could be talking to people that aren't even reading this book right now, non-Christians, right? So as you open it up, he's like, this is the, the end of what's going to happen to people who take advantage of others and who are rich in this world who reject Christ. But then the other side is, where does it hit us? Where does it make us uncomfortable? You see, James uses the word in verse 3, hoarding. Hoarding. Now, we use that terminology in our culture pretty frequently. We even have TV shows about it, right? Hoarders. And so you're like getting all, accumulating all of this stuff. And maybe we're not on a TV show, but we've got collections, right? Collections of things that are just accumulating because we can. And so right now, one of the things that... What he's doing is he's saying, okay, this word is meant to bring out in us, are we living a me-centered vision for life? Are we just accumulating possessions for ourselves and it's all about me? There's no like really like good that we can do with it, but it's just me-centered. See, we live in a generation of collectors. There's a terminology, uh, sneakerheads. Sneakerheads are people who collect and accumulate sneakers, right? Like you are looking for the most unique, hard-to-find sneaker that's out there. And um, it's very common in our culture today. Now, in August 2017, a guy named Josen Cummings uh, wrote an article in GQ magazine about this growing addiction of hoarding shoes, sneakers, um, in this generation. And here's the article. It's entitled, Growing Up and Developing a Sneaker Addiction. And what he does is at the beginning, he says, hey, I'm going to confess. I have a sneaker problem. He says, I'm going to get paid for this article. I'm going to write this article. And what I'm probably going to do with that money is I'm going to buy a brand new pair of shoes. Okay, this is a guy that's saying, okay, I'm going to go buy some shoes after this is done. So that, that's, he's confessing at the beginning. And now he's, he's, interviewing people with, with a real problem, right? They got the real problem 
the real sneakerheads. And so here's, here's what he says. These are people talking about Michael Jordan sneakers. Jordans. Right? Everybody's got to get the J's, the Jordans. And so he's talking about this with people. And so here's, here's what they say. The, the pair we always wanted is never enough. He's talking about people who finally got their first pair of Jordans. And this is perhaps the greatest trick that Jordan brand sneakers have ever played on consumers. That if we just got that one pair we wanted, all our dreams would be fulfilled. And these are the people he interviewed. So this guy, uh, Lee. So both Lee and DeSeuss can attest this is not the case. Lee says going from owning no pairs to now owning six pairs is about connecting to his truest self. There's still the freshman in me who sees those sneakers as a marker in life. He says he acknowledges there are more important things. His career success has afforded him like a nanny and preschool for his child, business suits for his on-air appearances, but Jordans represent a tiny slice of freedom. Getting what I want, when I want it, and I'm not hurting anybody. That's nice, he says. DeSeuss has always been John Jordan's. Since getting those first pair, he now estimates he has over 100 pairs of Jordan sneakers and says he easily uh, make up the majority of his collection. It's a reminder that I've made it. I feel like I'm doing it for little me. Here's the thing. Maybe your addiction is not Jordan sneakers. Maybe it's something else that we're saying, okay, if I had this thing or collection of these things, then that's going to make me a more valuable person. That's going to lift up my status or make me feel better. But James is reminding us that these material possessions that we binge on will fade. The trust we place in our material possessions will be destroyed. Rot and corrode are the words he uses here. It won't last. It's an illusion. And it's, it's an illusion. I, I confess, there was a time where I was, my wife was like, you got to stop buying surfboards. Those aren't cheap. And she's like, you got to stop this. Right, and so there is something in us, right, as we get fixated on something that we are capable of hoarding. We're capable of it. I see my kids, they are already hoarding their little collectibles. And I step on them all the time. Right, and so it's in us. But what happens is, James says, be very clear, it is an illusion, it will fade. See, and there's a distinction here, the Bible it's not against saving, right? It's not against saving. It's against hoarding, hoarding. See, there's this story that Jesus tells in Luke 12, 16 through 21. It's called the parable of the rich fool. And it says this, he told them this parable saying, the land of the rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store up my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Again, misplaced trust. But God said to him, fool, 
This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Not rich toward God. Again, placing trust in possessions and wealth, Jesus says that is the recipe for foolishness. And so, what do we do? Needed repentance. And so the next place that, that, that we get to in the, the scriptures is verses four and five. And so here's what James says. James says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. He starts out with this command. And here's his command. Look. Look. Look at what? Many times, we don't want to look at the details of our life. We don't want to look at the details of our personal sin. We want, we want to push it aside. It's like in this broad general category where Jesus loves me and he forgives me of all of my sin, but we don't want to look at the specifics of our sin and how it affects others. But James is saying, hold on a second. I'm not going to let you get away so quickly. He takes us to our sin and he says, I need you to look at this. I need you to think on this for a little bit. Is this right? Is this in accordance with God? And again, he gets specific. He says, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying against you. Now, here's the thing. You say, I don't, that's not me. That's not me. I, I don't have that going on in my life. But what is it specifically for us? Again, this is the conviction upon which James is bringing to the people that are listening, right? This is what they were doing. But what is it that we need to be accountable for? See, for that time, the rich, there, there was no urgency to pay the wages of the workers because it didn't affect them. It didn't affect them. But it did affect the ones that they needed to pay. See, here's the thing. Sin it always has a consequence. It, it always does damage. It hurts others, right? And so again, if it's like we're just addicted to spending, 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 but we don't have the money, and then it's affecting our family, right? That, there's something that we're accountable to, right? There's an effect to sin, and now James says this. He, he basically says that sins will find us out. They will find us out. He says the cries, the cries of the people that are hurting have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. In the end, what does a repentance look like? It is understanding that we are accountable before the living God. And so how do we repent, right? Repent sounds like such an old, archaic word. 
Like, what does that mean? It's just a guy on the side of the street yelling, repent, repent, repent. No, repent. That is, that's hope. That's hope. That's hope that there's a future. That's hope as, as we turn by the grace of God, that God gives us new life. See, that's where new life is found. It starts with repenting and saying, God, I'm wrong, you're right. The way that I was living, that's wrong. God, help me because you are right. He's the only one that's right. See, re true repentance is oriented towards God, not me. Psalm 51.4 says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, God. That's what repentance looks like. It is motivated by this godly sorrow in our hearts. Again, in 2 Corinthians, it tells us that for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. It's not, I just feel bad, but it's, God, I have done wrong before you. Help me. It's concerned with the heart, not just with the external actions. Right? Psalm 51 tells us, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God, I'm wrong. You're right. Help me. Clean my heart out. God. It looks to Jesus as the only one who can deliver us. See, as sin is exposed, it is brought to God honestly saying, this is who I am so that he can heal us. And so as James is speaking, he's speaking with the intention of leading people to God so that they can find healing in God's grace. Thomas Merton once said this, but the man who is not afraid to admit everything that he sees to be wrong within himself and yet recognizes that he may be the object of God's love precisely because of his shortcomings can begin to be sincere. His sincerity is based on confidence, not in his own illusions about himself, but in the endless, unfailing mercy of God. It is placing, it's, it's, it's the misplaced trust, right? We were trusting in ourself and what we have in our abilities before God, God exposes it so that we can bring it to him and say, God, all I have is your mercy. All I have is your kindness. All I have is your grace upon me. That's all I have. The last point is costly grace. Look at verse six. It says this. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. What is James talking about here? Well, let's look at it. He says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one. So he goes from talking about these workers, and then he makes this shift. This is plural. Now he's talking singular. He says, you have mur condemned and murdered the innocent one. Now, did they go out and murder these workers? No, that's not what he's talking about here. He's bringing them back to the one, the one that was condemned, the one that was murdered. 
Why? Because our harshest sins put him on a cross. He says, who is not opposing you. Think about this. He doesn't say, who couldn't oppose you, who didn't have the power. You you were taking advantage of the poor people, and they didn't have the power to oppose you. No, what he says is, who is not opposing you. Someone was voluntarily not opposing, even though he had the power to oppose. This should bring up images of costly grace, of Jesus. See, here's the truth. We we only have what we have because of the grace of God. And we must see and address the sin that is so rampant in our lives, the sin that tells us, I am a self-made person. I got here because I was just smarter than everybody else and because I had my life together, and that's why I deserve to hoard whatever I have. I deserve a life that's filled with me. No. See, many times we ignore the one who was murdered, who was condemned, who could have used his life, his power for himself, but instead used it for us. And he could have opposed us. He had every right to. But instead was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Charles Spurgeon once said, a pardoned sinner will hate the sins which cost the Savior's blood. Will hate the sins that cost the Savior's blood. You see, and there are things in our lives that we can try and cover up and say that it's not there. But when we come to God's word, we say, God, What's the truth about me? By your grace, help me. Because I see what Jesus has done for me. And so just some quick takeaways for self-evaluation. The first one is this. Our stuff. Our stuff. Question is, am I hoarding? Am I just gathering things for myself, hoarding, hoarding, hoarding? You say, well, how do I know? The good question to ask is this. Is what I have a necessity or a luxury? Right, like, is this necessary? Do I need this? Or is it a luxury? Because we could say, well, since my income is going up, I I can... Do more, and I can live more extravagantly. But is that what God's calling us to? To hoard it for ourselves. I remember my first mission trip in the Western Hemisphere. And I remember getting off the plane and looking around and just being shocked. 
The country is just decimated. It, it is, it's hard to get around. And I remember every day we would go up to the school and we would drive up and there was a guy at the gate and he would look at my shoes. And I remember towards the end of the trip, he kept looking at my shoes and he said, hey, can I have your shoes? Can I have your shoes? And I remember thinking to myself like, I don't really have any other shoes on this trip. What am I going to do? And so I remember the last day as I went through the gate and he looked at me and he says, hey, can I have your shoes? And I said, no, nah, man, I need my shoes. And I never saw him again. And I remember coming home to my collection of shoes and thinking to myself, I didn't need those shoes. I didn't need those shoes. God convicted me. He convicted me. And what I realized was this, that I was hoarding. And I'm not saying that's what needs to happen for every person that's here. I'm saying that's what God spoke to me. That's what the Holy Spirit convicted me on. Right? And so when I'm presented with opportunities like that again, I pray that by the grace of God, I will respond in a way where I trust God. <laughs> right? But again, that was for me. I'm not saying this is, you need to apply this to all of your life. That was my application. But are there areas in our lives where we do the same? Do we need to do some soul searching and allow God's spirit to speak to us? See, what are we doing with our money? Is it rotting away? See, the picture James paints of wealth rotting away gives us a view into our souls. What happens is as we hoard, it gives us a picture on the inside. The next self-evaluation is this, our character. Am I taking advantage of people? Right? Are our bills unpaid? Are the bills that are unpaid in our lives, are they crying out to God? Is our life discrediting the gospel? If so, is this a call to repentance before God? See, as Christians, we have this assurance that even though we might have those things in our lives, God doesn't convict us, but he does, or he doesn't condemn us, but he does convict us. And what this is, is Jesus saying to us in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I remember one time I was with my friend. Um, we'd just become friends. I didn't really know him well. And we were at the movies, and it was, uh, he, he, the lady at the counter said, hey, um, do you have this thing? If you do, then you get this discount. He says, yeah, 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 I got that. 
And he turned away and uh, he looked at me. He's like, I don't got that. You know, I just did it for the discount and all that. And so, you know, he was like, he lied about it. And later, this guy, as God grabbed a hold of his heart, because that's just the kind of person, he, he would look for a deal in anything. He'd, he'd, try, he'd you know, try to like negotiate and take advantage and get as much as he could. If you met him today, you would say, no way that story is true about him. No way. I'm telling you, he is one of the most generous people I've ever met because Jesus got a hold of his heart. It was Jesus. It's God. He, took, he took this guy who didn't mind taking advantage of people to save a dollar to now a person who gives generously and loves people with his wealth. Different. His character has changed. The next one is last. This is the last one, our perspective. Am I ignoring the covering I have in Jesus? Am I ignoring the covering I have in Jesus? How, how do we define riches? Our true riches, knowing Jesus, we're saying, here's how much I have in my bank account. Here's the test. Does the balance in our bank account today define me more than what Jesus says about me? Because there will be different times in your life where we'll ebb and will flow. And you'll say, I feel good today because this is how much I have. And I can't live life tomorrow because I don't have anything. If you have Jesus, you have the riches of God. And nothing can take that from you. See, because verse 5 says there is a day of slaughter. And many times what we do is God says, hey, all these things aren't going to last. All of this is going to pass away. And what we do is it's like we're going into a hotel, right? You check into a hotel and you look around the hotel room and you look and you say, hey, that TV's not big enough. That's only a 32 inch. I need to get a 50 inch TV. And so you go down to Best Buy, you get a 50 inch TV, you go inside, you take that 32 inch, you throw it out the window and you put a 50 inch up there. You say, that, that's a queen size bed. I need a king size bed. So you throw that out the window. You say, I need to get that king size bed and I need to put that inside here. And you just go throughout the room and you just start redecorating and you check out in two days. That's what it looks like for us. When it says the day of slaughter is coming, it's not going to last. How are we using what we have? for the glory of God? And do I believe that ultimately God's grace is more important than the material riches of this world? And so let me ask you this. Do you remember what he's done for you? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, my sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. True riches is God's riches at Christ's expense and what he says about you today.
that he loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that today we will see that no matter what we're going through in life, that it is you who defines us more than anything. And I thank you for the words that James said today. I pray that it strips us of our comfort level right now so that we can see, God, that we are truly rich in Christ. It's not this prosperity gospel theology. It's a true love for you and that we are rich because we have you in our lives. And so, Lord, may we take everything that you've placed in our hands and use it for your glory. And I just thank you, God, that you allow us to enjoy nice things, but it doesn't, it doesn't define us. Make us a generous people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.